Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. First episode back of a whole load of new episodes, and I can commit to that because I've recorded all of them. Over the next few months, we're going to be taking a deep dive into what any of us can do to fix work, and I'm going to be taking a look at what workplace culture really is, the actions we can take to make it better. These occasional other episodes along the way, I've got one I recorded at VidCon, which is the sort of digital creators festival that doesn't really fit into this, but it's a really lovely chat, so I'll just drop that along the way, and I think that will come next week. Look for the labels marked Fix Your Work. You can also find all of them on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com forward slash fix your work, and, and they're all gathered there. If you like this, uh, share it with your team. Maybe use it for team discussions. I'm keen to hear from people who have sort of discussions on the themes that these things bring up. Uh, I was in New York last week promoting the launch of the the book named after this series, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. So it's the same book. One of my colleagues bought it. Uh, it's the same book as the UK book with some very slight changes. So I wouldn't double up unless you're a completist. And then if you are a completist, where well, you're going to love uh, the range of Polish, French, French, Canadian, all manner of books that are coming your way. Just to give you a perspective of what's going to come up over the next sort of few episodes, we're going to be taking a look inside the culture of some of the biggest companies, what works and what doesn't work. We're going to study companies who've tried to change their culture, the ones who succeeded, the ones who failed, the difference between team culture and company culture, what creates culture and what actions can any of us take to change it. We're also going to be looking at some of the things that companies are doing right now to adapt how they're working. So whole load of stuff. But today we're kicking off with talking about Microsoft, a company that I think, you know, rightfully so gets a lot of attention because it's uh, it has been and, and now is again the biggest company in the US. It's relevant because I think a lot of the factors that help shape cultures, Microsoft had to deal with and tackle. And they give us some really fascinating pointers. If you are looking to change company culture, what can you do? What works and what doesn't work? About six years ago, Satya Nadella took over what had formerly been the biggest company in the world, Microsoft. As only its third chief executive, Microsoft had been founded in 1975. 42 years into its history, it was looking for someone new to take it on. For a job of this scale, there's always sort of high intrigue of who will get the job. And while Satya Nadella was a Microsoft lifer, he was pretty unknown to anyone but the 120,000 Microsoft employees. You'll know his predecessors. First up was founder Bill Gates. 
Gates has had PR teams working hard on his image in the decades since he left the helm. At the time he led Microsoft, he felt monochrome. He was like the finance director of the Death Star, defending their right to make money from their natural monopoly that had fallen into their hands. Everything's a reaction to everything. Presidents are a reaction to previous presidents, sports managers to previous sports managers. Gates' successor, Steve Ballmer, was a reaction to Gates. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Ballmer! Steve Ballmer was a cartoonish alpha male salesman who made eye-popping, sweat-showering stage performances. He's stock in trade. Who said sit down? I have four words for you. I love this company. Yes! First and foremost, he was a massive performer. YouTubing clips of Balmer is always entertaining. Developers, 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 developers. The thing is, 20 years on, it's immensely charming to watch some of the things he got up to. He looks like he's got a real sense of fun. It's just not the behaviour we want from our biggest companies in the world. And especially when they're sitting on what we're becoming clear to be natural monopolies. Leaders aside, the problem for the company was that while Microsoft was still immensely profitable from having the installed base of software on almost every desktop computer on earth, they were slipping behind on all of the new stuff. They missed the explosion of the web, ceding leadership to new starter Google. Then they watched Apple launch into phones and they seemed complacent and flat-footed. Here's Bulmer interviewed about the iPhone at launch. In the bit immediately before this, he's talking about the launch of the Microsoft Zune. You might want to bing that one. $500 fully subsidized with a plan? I said, that is the most expensive phone in the world, and it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard, which makes it not a very good email machine. And now Microsoft and Amazon were starting to transform communication, retail, and cloud hosting online. Balmer had his own problems. He'd taken over just 17 days after a stock market crash in 2000. The company had spent years mired in antitrust investigations and were being regulated in markets like Europe. The impact of the external regulation and limits to how aggressive the company could be with competitors was starting to focus the intellect of those at Microsoft on winning internal battles. I went to chat to Herminia Ibarra, professor at London Business School. Professor Ibarra has written a case study with some colleagues that's essential reading on this. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. If you're interested in this episode, she tells all of it in great detail. I asked Professor Ibarra what the culture was like during this Balmer era. It was viewed as extremely political, extremely inwardly focused, uh, very conflictual, and very cover your own butt and stab the other one in the back before they stab you. And that, that's been portrayed very, very clearly in the press across you know, a range of different periodicals and interviews with massive amounts of people. It was being reflected in the glass door comments and ratings. You know, the, the reputation really was they've turned their eyes away from the external competition and they're now competing with each other. There was this very famous cartoon that went around that showed the organization structures at each different tech company. And at Microsoft, they had all their guns pointed at each other across the different business units. 
Now, what ends up happening is people start focusing inside and the internal contest and who's gonna who's gonna get more resources and who's gonna get the promotion and who's in favor. And that is self-reinforcing if the organization allows and rewards it, which they did by essentially rewarding those people whose ideas were completely window-centric and not rewarding those whose ideas were not. When you actually reward it, it's a fixed equation. You've got limited time and energy, so the more you focus inwards, the less you focus outside and the less likely you are to see that that's where the real competition is. Now, once you start losing ground, which they did, as innovation after innovation fails to take, then it kind of feeds the internal posturing, positioning what you did, making sure you don't lose further ground, and that further speeds the cycle of irrelevance. It's worth saying that it wasn't all bad news under Belma, but they'd focused on profiting from their existing business and were slipping behind in innovation. Now, look, let's just not forget that under Steve Ballmer, they doubled profits and tripled revenues. You know, it was an expansionist era, and it's no accident that it was led by a salesperson because that's what you do when you've got magic dust, and what you want to do is efficiently get it out there. Now, that's a very different game than innovating on something new. What they were about was really executing flawlessly on this fantastic product that they had and the whole world wanted. And that, for all organizations, that's what Clay Christensen called the innovator's dilemma. You know, you have a hungry beast that wants to be fed. It's profitable. It's successful. All your systems are geared towards that, and it becomes self-reinforcing. Within that world, it's really hard to deviate from it. Now, they did. They set up different units, and Satya came out of a different unit. He was asked to lead Bing, and Balmer told him, if you fail, you're fired, so you know what you're getting yourself into. But he did that, and then he went to the cloud. And so he was on the periphery. He was an insider, but on the periphery of that whole monster system that had been created to generate profit and margin and revenue, which they did successfully. So it's always, it's always a mixed story. It's hard to transform when you have such great success on those grounds, but not good press not getting the star engineers anymore, failing on the innovations, and you know that's going to get you into trouble, but it's always hard to know when you start to really seriously need to transform. One of the things that Herminia Ibarra's case study describes is how the Belmer culture at Microsoft was adding to internal pressures. Like lots of firms, they used a stack ranking system, meaning that colleagues were competitively pitted against each other. Generally, these things involve bosses giving scores to their team members sometimes in secret, but mainly shared with the employees. It comes from the old General Electric boss, Jack Welsh, who felt you should be always firing your bottom 5 or 10% of workers. Now, often no boss wants to say that their workers are in the bottom 5 or 10%. It creates tension, it's awkward in their teams. So to force them to do it, companies often use something called forced distribution. In other words, it means that collectively teams have to agree who is in the bottom 10% of their ranks. In the companies that do it, there's often meetings which involve fierce debate as colleagues snipe at members of other teams, trying to find someone to throw to the wolves. Professor Ibarra quotes one product manager saying, if you don't play the politics, it's management by character assassination. Combined with this, there was an internal feeling that no one wanted to take crazy chances with new products. 
the downside of being judged a failure was just too high. As a result, Microsoft was guilty of lots of copycat innovation. The iPod led to the Microsoft Zune, for example. The iPad saw them launch Microsoft Surface. One of the additional consequences was that Microsoft's reputation as an employer wasn't strong externally. With no innovation, no new blood, bad headlines and tribal internal politics, morale suffered. In 2011, Balmer's glass door rating was 29% approval by his own employees. So to compare, Larry Page at Google was scoring 94 at that time and Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook was the number one in the world at 99%. Nadella found himself prevailing in the selection process. Ibarra explains how this came about. A CEO selection contest is always a complicated thing. The board is very much involved. I'm sure Bill Gates was involved. I'm sure they had headhunters involved. And part of the selection is understanding what does the organization need for this next phase of its journey and what are the ideas of the different candidates. It is no accident that he was selected because A, he's an engineer, so he is emblematic of what Microsoft had grown out of and strayed away from. Two, he came from the cloud, which at a strategic level, they could see that was the new, next new thing. And so it made a lot of sense. And, and, you know, and what I don't know is to what extent his very different personal style relative to his predecessor, to what extent that played in post hoc, it makes sense if you're trying to move into a more innovative era, somebody who's more inquisitive rather than bombastic is going to make sense. But those are always post hoc explanations. Professor Ibarra mentioned that Nadella had been told in his last job that he was at risk of being fired. He tells the story here, talking to Bloomberg TV. I had just been promoted to lead our business solutions team and I was loving that job and something that I'd aspired to do. And Steve comes around and he says, hey, you know what? I have an idea for you. I think you should go run this group that's got high attrition and we have a very tough task ahead. And I don't know whether it's a good career move, but I need help. Think wisely and choose. Well, Steve say, if you do this well, we'll be happy. If you don't do it well, you might not get another job. That's correct. And that was, you know, one of the things that is amazing of both Bill and Steve is uh, their candor. It's not like they sugarcoat anything. They're very, very honest about most things in life or everything in life. And they were sort of very clear. Look, if you do a good job, maybe you will have another job. If not, you won't. Quite often we say that elections are change elections or continuity elections. And it's the same for jobs. From the start, Nadella knew he was a change candidate. Critical thing about attempting to change a culture is that you need to signal that change. Often you need to do it a lot. Nadella set to doing that, telling the world that something had changed, letting people inside and outside the company know that things were going to be different. I went to chat to Paul Davies. He's the consumer marketing director at Microsoft today, but he's worked under the Balmer and Nadella eras at Microsoft. I asked him what Nadella did to let people know that he was different to Gates and Balmer. He did a lot of things, but I think the first thing that I noticed it was really visible was when he was announced, the press photography was really interesting because traditionally our executives had been in blue shirts and chinos and it was kind of that that sort of style, but he was was in a hoodie and a t-shirt and jeans and trainers. 
And suddenly it felt, oh, wow, okay, things feel a bit differently around here. And that was really powerful. So that, that was the first thing that I felt was very visual. Here's Professor Herminia Ibarra on that very hoodie. Her point is that leaders need to try to signal far more than we realise. It takes many actions to deliver a consistent message. And a nod to Silicon Valley and yeah. how the tech world has evolved in the direction of young people in hoodies. You know, there's always symbolism involved in leadership. That's you get your message across, not by saying slogans, but by a little symbol here, a little nudge there, how you appear here. You know, those are those are the ways people start to get it and paying attention that maybe something new and different is happening. Satya Nadella reflected on what was wrong with Microsoft. He wrote in his promotion email, quote, Microsoft's culture has been rigid. Each employee has to prove to everyone that he or she was the smartest person in the room. Accountability, delivering on time and hitting numbers trumped everything, unquote. This was the know-it-all culture. Nadella goes on. This is taken from his intro email when he was promoted. Quote, meetings were formal. If a senior leader wanted to tap the energy and creativity of someone lower down in the organisation, he or she needed to invite that person's boss, unquote. So I was interested in how important the leader's own story was in his situation. When someone comes into a leader role, we allow more changes from that person than the previous incumbent. But of course, across the company, a lot of people would have been quietly asking themselves, do I like this guy? Do I trust him? Am I inspired by him? It's why the styling with a hoodie was an important piece of tonal messaging. Herminia Ibarra's paper describes one leadership retreat in 2015 when the legacy leadership team spent most of their time together picking holes in each other's ideas. In contrast, people who joined from businesses that Microsoft had acquired, like Minecraft creator Mojang, seemed engaged and asked questions filled with curiosity. You mentioned the culture thing there, and you described something quite vividly, which was Satya Nadella talked about a team offsite where he watched the interactions between people that seemed to be... I, I forget which year this was, but it seemed to be a relic of the bygone era where they were all being snippy with each other. They were all criticizing each other. What was it specifically he set about trying to change with the culture that was yeah. a pushback against that? I think what you're referring to is a really good example. And it's a good example of how you iterate because it happened a lot later. I would say probably about two years ago or a year and a half ago, they decided to get rid of something that was very much a relic of the past. And that was the way they ran their quarterly business review meetings. And in particular, the very key one, which was the mid-year quarterly review, the one that happened in January. And this is primarily within the overall sales organization. You know, that's the, the meeting where all the brass gets together to review the forecasts and the margins and, and all of that. And they were still running it like in the old days, which was really, one of them called it corporate theater. It's a performance. You've got, you know, people who have been preparing PowerPoint after PowerPoint for months. They were ruining their Christmas holidays getting this ready. You had people who were preparing the preparers. You had assistants coming, then people who just wanted to see the whole show. And, you know, in the old era, it was an exercise in rigor. And that's where you showed that you had gone the extra mile, where you knew your business inside out. And if you were asked any detailed question, you could pull out that footnote 76 on slide 82 and you knew your stuff better than anybody else. It was a way of showing not just that you knew your stuff, but you knew how to play the game at Microsoft, you know, in a way. And they were still doing that. And what they've come to realize is in this shift, and the shift has really been led by being 
obsessed with your customer, knowing them, what they need, and how do we provide it, whether it's Windows-based or not. They realize, because they actually track how they spend their time and the outcomes of those, they apply a lot of their own people analytics to themselves, they realize that the more time you spent with your customers, the more they use of your product. And by the way, a big shift had been, as you shift to the cloud, your revenues are based on consumption, on usage by the client. It's not a, a one-shot per- purchase. And so you've got, to be mo- you've got to help them understand how to use it if they're going to use it. And so that takes spending time with them. What was keeping people from spending more time with their customers? A lot of the internal bureaucracy and the political games and preparing 100 overheads that nobody was going to look at. And so as they started to really focus on what does it take to do customer obsession and what's keeping people from doing it, they realized it was the internal stuff that was taking up their time and that it was no longer really needed because they have all of these smart dashboards so that everybody knows what the numbers are and what the forecasts are. You don't need to make this big hullabaloo four times a year and particularly in that key meeting. So they did away with it. They're, well, they still have a review meeting, but it's a much more conversational. You don't have these mega presentations, and people have been told to work on it in January and certainly not spend their holidays preparing for it. These meetings, now abolished, were one of the reasons that the culture was regarded as a know-it-all culture. I wanted to understand that a bit more. When it's articulated that they wanted to move from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture, I took know-it-all to be slightly pejorative, but you, you're saying that there's almost a there's almost a benign use of know-it-all, which is someone who knows all their data, their stats. They've is, is that right, or is the pejorative the right one that they were pushing against? Well, I don't know if it's pejorative. You know, all of these things start out with good intent. So I think it did start out with a know-it-all in terms of, you know, I'm expert. I, you know, I know my stuff in and out. And so when you're expert, two things happen. You know what your customer needs. And so you're there to impart your wisdom. And when you're expert internally, taken to an extreme, you've got to put on a good show. And so these review meetings, rather than being about joint problem solving, they're about putting your best face forward. Here's how great I am, as opposed to, here's some issues I see. Let's discuss and see how we can solve these issues. That was not the time. That was performance time. It's, you know, it's related to the idea of growth mindset that they drew on heavily for their transition. You could have a performance mindset, which is great in many cases, but it gets in the way when you let putting on a good show get in the way of learning what you need to learn. And when it keeps people from voicing what they know that could get you into trouble now or further on down the line. And then the growth mindset, which is more around learning, where you're favoring trying to understand the challenges and putting yourself in a position where you're going to learn something new, even if it's a detriment to your immediate uh, numbers or your immediate performance. And so that was able to afford them the willingness to then not be the experts in a field or to, to experiment a bit more. I mean, that's culturally, that's what they're trying to do, allow people to try things that um, might at first blow up in their face. You know, in the case study, there was the great example of Tay, the chat box that um, was trolled and became racist and sexist in no time at all. Um, 
you could see an old world in which there would have been serious repercussions for people who put that out too early. And Satya was very supportive. He said, we don't have it right, but we've learned something new and now we can incorporate that into next phase. I think what's interesting is the know-it-all to learn-it-all started with how they approach their customers. And I think that's been a big part of their success that it all was kind of customer-led. But once they started to really understand it relative to their customers, they were able to see the inconsistencies internally. We're still being know-it-alls in how we treat each other, in how we present to each other, in how we have performance conversations, and how do we relax some of that so that people can also be learn-it-alls among themselves as we work across the different parts of Microsoft. Nadella had been a 22-year veteran of Microsoft, joining in 1992. He set about changing this daily experience that team members were experiencing. Professor Ibarra mentioned a famous cartoon, shared in the show notes and in the case study, which shows that Microsoft was regarded as a company with, with guns drawn against each other. He wanted to change that. Nadella told the Australian Financial Review, quote, we had to go from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. And that's been important to me. This is not about new dogma. It is about being able to give team members breathing space to be able to bring their A-game, to be able to be vulnerable and not have to put on an act of knowing everything, but to be curious and learn, unquote. Here's Microsoft's president and chief legal officer, Brad Smith, saying as much to Kara Swisher on Recode's Decode, her podcast. When Steve was the CEO, Bill Gates was the chairman, and it was called, we have to learn to get along. Mm -hmm. We have to you know, build some bridges. We have to make peace with governments. We're going to have to agree to some restraints, and that's going to require processes and controls. In some ways, that set the foundation for what I think of as the cultural evolution of this decade led by Satya. In a very interesting way, I think Satya took the cultural evolution of the 2000s and said, let's sustain this level of responsibility. Let's be committed to trust with customers as a core Mm -hmm. uh, principle for the company. But let's add to this what he describes as a growth mindset, you know, a real focus on a learn-it-all rather than know-it-all culture at Microsoft. And let's use that to unleash innovation, especially with more employees and perhaps most importantly, younger employees. You'll note some repetition here, simple phrases being repeated often that sort of label what people have been directed towards. Learn it all culture, growth mindset, same phrases over and over again. Brad Smith mentioned younger employees. It was felt that Microsoft was falling behind hiring best talent. One of the things that didn't help here was that Microsoft seemed boring in comparison to their rivals. Companies like Google and Facebook were talking about moving fast and breaking things, not being evil. The bosses of Google skateboarded around vast campuses wearing T-shirts. In comparison, Microsoft seemed obsessed with money. The original Microsoft mission had been to put a computer on every desk and in every home. They were asking their team effectively to get behind a goal of selling loads. It was only a year into his tenure that Nadella unveiled a new mission. Again, something they would learn to repeat a lot. Here's Paul Davies again, talking about how the team welcomed Satya as a person and how he brought the sense of mission, stroke purpose to life. I think everyone sort of very much welcomed him with open arms. What I love about Satya as a leader is 
he's got such integrity and he always brings everything back to the purpose which you ask any Microsoft employee and, and they can tell you this because it's kind of it's stamped on the back of all of our security passes Satya talks about it at every keynote is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more and, and that's what he talks about it's delivered with with such depth of integrity that level of purpose and it, it permeates the organization if I think about even in our advertising we used to talk about what our products and services did so, so we call it speeds and feeds um, features and benefits and that's what we used to do but we don't do that anymore. We talk about what people do with our technology and how they achieve. So it's not about us being cool. We, I don't think we think we're particularly cool. But what we do think is cool is what our customers do with our technology. And that's the big difference. So that new mission was, quote, to empower every person and every organisation on the planet to achieve more. Nadella made sure that the Microsoft teams looking for meaning were given something more than speeds and feeds to think about. They were given something they could proudly tell their parents, friends and partners. Professor Ibaria mentioned earlier the innovator's dilemma. This is a situation named after a book by Clayton Christensen, often described as the most important business book ever. The principle of it is that new technology and its application, by its very nature, often disrupts existing customers. And so the incumbents in a market often don't have a big incentive to bring these new innovations to their customers, meaning that big companies are often slow to bring new ideas to the market, even if they can spot the opportunities for them. In 2017, three years into his tenure, Nadella released a book, Refresh, which his co-author said was in many ways seen as a way to anchor the new culture internally. The book was given to everyone in the company. As ever, it was careful not to bury the past, but it was clear that this was a new Microsoft. This is another part of the repetition I've mentioned earlier. To try and bring a message to the team, it needed to be repeated over and over and over, and often in different ways. Here's Paul Davis again. It can't be done overnight, would be my thinking on it. What I've felt is that it's about frequency of message and repetition. Because there's always a danger with these things that you think, oh, that's that's just that's just this year's initiative mm. and next year we'll have something else. But this has been repeated so many times in different formats, in text, verbally, visually, multiple times throughout the years that I think that's really helped to embed it amongst the people. And I think when you hear a leader right at the top of an organization repeatedly come back to a purpose, that's when it starts to really permeate through an organization. And yes, as well, the, the small things like, you know, on the back of the security badges and stuff like that that we talked about, I think really helps and that, that helps to make it stick. But it's, it's about repetition and frequency and following through with action so it's not just words. Such was the power of repetition of these images, of these stories. I did have a pause for thought. Maybe we were just being spun here. Windows, Word and PowerPoint used to be sold to you. You paid just over £100 for each of them. Now you subscribe to them. They cost you more than Netflix annually. In business jargon, this is moving from being a packaged good, something cellophane wrapped and sitting on a shelf, taken to the till, to a subscription model. And I hesitated. I asked myself, is all of this just spin? Are we just being sold something that isn't necessarily a cultural transformation? It's just a business model change. It struck me that the importance of stories and narratives in terms of us understanding and interpreting things, because you could say, with a mischievous interpretation, you could say, 
actually what we're looking at here is someone that had one of the biggest installed bases of business software in the world, and they've switched it from a packaged good product to a subscription product, and everything else is window dressing. But the brilliance is that that window dressing actually helps us interpret what's going on. So, so firstly, how much do you think that mischievous interpretation is fair? And then how important are stories in helping us in, interpret this? So stories are critical because stories um, get us focused on what's the ending going to be and is it going to be a happy ending? And, you know, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? So, you know, stories stories are important. I think people needed a, a, a kind of a redemption narrative for Microsoft. You know, we're a good company that's kind of becoming, become a bit irrelevant. And how do we, you know, we triumphed, we became great again. And they were able to be the David to Amazon's Goliath. You know, that's, you know, a cherry on the cake. But if uh, the story was, we've just changed our pricing model then you wouldn't have got those extra no. engineers back. You wouldn't have got like this empathetic CEO figure. But you can't, you can't um, underestimate the technological change that's required to shift to that way of operating, even if it were just window dressing, which I don't think it is. Um, you know, they've had to hire thousands and thousands of um, cloud engineers. You know, they've had to compete with the startups. And so I think technologically it's no small feat. And this is then allowing them to start to get an edge with artificial intelligence. And they have to leverage what they, you know, the, the wonderful storehouse that they've had in order to use that. The story is by far not over. I don't think it's 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 simple. It's simple window dressing. I mean, they've... Um, They've gone to open source, something that was complete anathema uh, before. They, um, if you look at their their acquisitions, big and small, uh, they indicate something a little bit different. Um, you know, I think we'll have to stay stay tuned to see which way it plays out. But it looks, it does look different to me. In the Dallas original email, he signaled the importance of his hunger for learning. Many who know me say I am also defined by my curiosity and thirst for learning. I buy more books than I can finish. I sign up for more online courses than I can complete. I fundamentally believe if we are not learning new things, you stop doing great and useful things. One of the things that Microsoft talks a lot about now is the lessons they learned from changing their mindset. Mindset by Carol Dweck is a book that's become a modern classic. As an aside, I have to confess that while I strongly support the findings in it, I found it a really hard slog to read. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you have to read the original. One of the things that Dweck talks about is the difference between a growth mindset, open to improving and change, and a fixed mindset, which the know-it-all culture was certainly an example of. Nadella loved this and made sure that Dweck's language became the language that the whole company used. Here's Paul. We talk a lot about having a growth mindset. And so we talk about embracing change, it being okay to make mistakes, don't seek perfection, don't wait for perfection, but keep running if, if it's good enough. And so we talk a lot about growth mindset. We've all been on this journey of developing a growth mindset, which is about accepting that sometimes we don't have all the information or things might not be perfect, or actually the future ahead might look look quite scary if we don't know wh where it's going, but really embracing it and going for it. And I think that's been a massive culture change. And so taking everyone on that growth mindset journey is something that that we've all been on. And I think that's really helped to, I guess, 
help people accept change and be up for it and go on that journey. As part of this growth mindset, Nadella used it to signal that he was open to doing new things that the old culture would never have done. One obvious place to start was to change the Microsoft walled garden approach to software development. Until then, Microsoft's products on Apple Macs weren't anywhere near parity, for example. The decision meant the company would start collaborating with competitors like Apple, and they started supporting open-source standard Linux, something Balmer had once described as a cancer. Another part of the growth mindset was just being open to admitting mistakes. Just a year into his tenure, Nadella announced a $7.6 billion write-down of the purchase of Nokia. In the era of Balmer, this sort of climb down might have been associated with Bluster and Bombast. But because Nadella cut such a gentle figure, the write down to some extent helped to signal that vulnerability. And mistakes were possible, if not inevitable. The thing that was clear to me as we look at Microsoft today is that they seem slick, impressive, forward looking. But when we go back and look at the journey, there were plenty of bumps in the road. Lots of things that we understand today that weren't fully formed at the outset. The human mind doesn't remember those things. It means that when we're thinking about our own culture or our own strategy, then it reminds us that sometimes the direction we head in is more important than the precise destination. Hamidia Ibarra explains a little bit more how Nadella iterated as he went along. People always think, you know, in retrospect, it looks perfectly logical and perfectly hatched, but it's not. It's um, especially today, it's very rare to have a kind of like a top, full top down transformation that's all planned, envisioned, and then kind of rolled out. You have an idea. And then if you're good, you get the right people working with you on how to flesh it out and how to iterate it as you learn. And I think actually Satya's idea, I mean, obviously, he was looking at new technology, AI, the cloud, but you know, kind of like the, the, the evolution of technology was obvious. That was kind of their next thing. But his change idea was not just about how do we position ourselves relative to Amazon Web Services. His change idea was a cultural one. And I think that's what made him successful. I mean, he basically said, look, there's a huge opportunity out there in the market and it has to do with the cloud and AI and technology. But we're going to miss it if we keep doing things the way we've done things. Our culture is going to keep us from really capitalizing on this because we are completely geared towards executing flawlessly on what we already know how to do. And we are not good at learning how to do new things because we punish people if they're not immediately high-performing and perfect. So he had his finger on that which is the really critical thing because anybody can execute on a strategic idea up to a point where you reach the limit of people's capacities, people's mindsets, people's willingness to take risks. And it always takes risks to do new things. So I think that's the brilliance of it. And it iterated. If you look at their annual report for, I think it was 1718, they talk about their strategy in terms of being um, cloud first, mobile first. If you look at their last annual report, it's cloud first with an intelligent edge. So it's more about cloud and AI, and they've sort of dropped the mobility because maybe, because that's a given now, and also because they have separated from the whole mobile phone sector. So it's, it's, it's an evolving thing, and as they learn, they iterate and they, they move on. Along the way there, Professor Ibarra nails a detail which I think is really crucial. 
She says that his change idea was a cultural one. Because we're geared to executing what we know, it often stops us from trying new things we're not good at. If we're going to do new things, we need to change the culture. And this is the massive impact of this. To some extent, Nadella didn't have a new product to win with. There was no iPhone rapidly growing, dominating the market. He didn't have new answers. His strategy was to reinvent the culture. Ask Paul Davis what the culture feels like in the company today. I think if I reflect on the day-to-day and how things have changed, I think, I think there, are, there are a few things. So when I meet people and they talk to me about, oh, you know, what, what's it like to work at Microsoft? Well, the first thing is, more people are interested. So I get asked a lot more than I ever used to. I think secondly, when I interview people that they feel that Microsoft is a different organization and they're attracted to it and they're interested in it because of the purpose and the culture. They've read about Satya and what he does and they want to talk about it. So that's really interesting. And thirdly, I get a lot of questions because the, the business is, we're in a growth cycle, which is fantastically exciting. I also get asked a lot about, oh, so, so what's happening within Microsoft? How, how, how is it changing? What, what have you done? What, what have been the ingredients? So I noticed a lot, more, a lot more interest from the outside world in what we're doing. So that, that feels different from the outside in. And then from the inside out, it feels, I think people feel more proud than they used to to work at Microsoft. I really get that, that sense of pride that really comes through because they feel that there is a higher order to the work that they're doing. We are helping people. It's a company that does good on the planet. I think that does permeate a culture and people feel differently about it. Yeah, so we have, we have an annual survey that every employee around the world completes. The key phrases that always comes out, or, or the key words, it's always pride. It's the one that always comes out year after year. So it's really interesting that 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 is a, I guess, a key sentiment that runs through the veins of the organisation. In boxing, there's an old adage that to be a champion, you need to think like a challenger. And there seems to be something in that. For Microsoft to be the biggest again, they needed to lose the hubris of success. I asked Paul whether he agreed with that. Yeah, there's a huge amount of humility in the organisation. Yes, we have come from behind and we're, we're in a growth phase, which is fantastic. But I don't think that's ever taken for granted. I, I think there's deep humility in the organization now, which, again, makes it a really great place to work because we're, we're deeply respectful of each other and the staff, but also our customers, and, you know, very grateful for our customers. Even the way we think about our competitors, actually, you know, we have deep respect for all our competitors and, and what they stand for because, you know, they make us better. And yes, there should be a choice. So I think humility really runs deeply through the organization now. With leaders, often one of the ways they hammer home culture is their own visibility. But with such a vast organisation spread across the whole planet, can Satya make his presence felt across such a big organisation? We're we're an international business, so so we're global. So there isn't a physical presence, but no, you absolutely feel it. And we use our own technology a lot. So he will um, stand up and do company meetings very regularly um, that around the world we all all tune into. There are Q&A sessions um, he'll send all company emails. So no, I, I very much feel his his sort of his fingerprints on the organization in, in a very positive way. So there definitely is a presence and yeah, he, he's around. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As we finish, how are things looking now? Nadella's employee approval score on Glassdoor is 95%. In a league chart they run, he's jumped from being number 20 CEO in the world to number six. In contrast, former chart topper Mark Zuckerberg dropped from 16 in 2018 to 55 last year. Microsoft has spent much of the last 12 months back as the most valuable company in the world. The lessons of Nadella's change for me at Microsoft are that you can change a culture, but you need to vocally call out the elements that need to change. In Microsoft's case, they'd become the market leaders who behave with a know-it-all market leader mentality. They needed to channel humility into the organisation. In an era with relentless new innovation around them, they were confronted with the innovator's dilemma. And it was only by acting to explode some parts of their old culture that they moved to the new place. The final critical part was the point that Professor Ibaria made. Microsoft's new strategy was this culture, bringing a culture of openness and, quote, growth mindset, unquote, allow them to reinvent the organisation. If you're interested in the lessons of today's podcast, you can go to eat, sleep, work, repeat, forward slash fix your work. There's a PDF there and you can download it with the main points. There's links to the case studies and more. Much of the the credit for today's episode comes from the paper that was an inspiration by Herminia Ibarra, Anita Rattan and Anna Johnston at the London Business School. Thanks to Herminia for talking to me. Thanks also to Paul Davies from Microsoft for sharing his thoughts. Next up, we've got a couple of episodes about the ways that some companies are trying to change specific parts of the way that they work. Also next week, I'm hoping to put out that episode from VidCon. Thanks for listening. As ever, I love you getting in touch. If you want to sign up for our email, you can do that at the website. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.